You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 108, Interwar Reflections. As this is something of a transitional episode, I would like to take the opportunity to thank everybody who has supported the podcast over the years, even if that support is just by listening every week. You, listening right now. Thank you. Next episode begins our series on the German invasion of Poland, which will be titled the September Campaign, which is how it is referred to in Poland. But it's been 107 episodes over the course of over two years, and I thought it would be a good moment to take a step back and look at some of the important themes and events from those episodes before we jump into the traditional start of the Second World War story with the Panzers rolling into Poland on September 1st, 1939. First up on our list of themes is the fear of communism. In 1917, the first and then the second Russian Revolution would occur, and that would be followed by the Russian Civil War, which saw the communist government in Russia solidify itself into power. If you want to learn more about those events, I did cover them in History of the Great War, or you can just go listen to Revolutions by Mike Duncan, who covered them better than I could ever hope to. The creation of the Soviet Union is obviously important for the overall events of the Second World War, but it was also crucial to the events of the interwar period around Europe and the world. The goal of communism was to meaningfully reshape society away from how it existed at the time. This meant that the rise of communism as a popular political ideology was a threat to existing power structures all over the world. During the first years of the 1920s, the communists would decisively win the Russian Civil War, and this would just make them a greater threat to the rest of Europe. Their first steps in extending their control into Central and Western Europe was Poland, and the defeat of the Red Army at the gates of Warsaw in the Polish-Soviet War would turn into a generational setback. The goal of the Russian communists, dating back to the very beginning of the revolution, had been to cause a revolution in Germany. With their defeat in Poland and the failures experienced by German communists in their efforts in 1919 and 1920 meant that the idea of a communist Germany and then a communist world was destroyed, at least for the time being. But this failure did not mean that communism and the Soviet Union was any less of a threat to other nations, or at least they saw it as still being a threat. 
During the 1920s, mostly normal economic and diplomatic relations would be put in place between Moscow and the rest of the world, but distrust remained. This distrust remained even during the late 1930s, and as the threat of German aggression seemed to be catapulting Europe into war, Britain and France still could not quite shake the idea that the Soviet Union was not really a nation that should be brought into their councils. There was even a fear that the Soviets were really just hoping to capitalize on a lengthy and drawn-out war between the Western democracies. This feeling was stoked by how the communist parties in Europe uh, interacted with the governments of those nations and other political parties. For the 1920s and then into the 1930s, the direction given to communist parties all over Europe was that they should not work with other left-wing parties, those that did not push for true communist revolution. They were treated just as much of an enemy as any other political group. This non-cooperation pushed communist parties away from the political establishments in their nations and far into the radical left, pretty much as far as possible. In the mid-1930s, this policy would shift to one of cooperation with socialist parties of Europe, which resulted in some real victories for this new political alliance, with France and the Popular Front being a good example. But there's always the suspicion, partially valid but also overblown, that the communist groups were always taking their marching orders from Moscow and were being used as a way for the Soviet Union to gain influence in other nations. The anti-communist views of many Western European political leaders resulted in two key decisions. The omission of a representative of the Soviet Union during the discussions that led to the Munich Agreement, and the decision of Britain and France to not aggressively pursue the possibilities of an alliance. For their part, the Soviet leaders, including Stalin, were also suspicious of the Western capitalist powers for some of the same reasons. There was concern that they just wanted to use the Soviet Union in a war so that then they could come in and replace the communist government. Soviet actions also created an entire cordon of nations that were deeply distrustful of anything coming from Moscow. From northern Finland in the Arctic Circle, all the way down to the Black Sea, there was a line of nations that considered the Soviet Union to be a direct threat to their survival. This made any wider Eastern European agreement impossible. As future events would show, these concerns about the Soviet Union and how it viewed these nations was an entirely valid and justified concern. Communism was not the only revolutionary political movement that would influence events in Europe during the interwar years, and no conversation about interwar themes and topics can be complete without a discussion of fascism and Nazism. Both of these movements would have their roots in the immediate post-war years, as the general dissatisfaction among some groups in societies would grow during the economic uncertainty and societal upheavals in the wake of the First World War. Both movements would speak to a radical nationalism that believed that violence was not just an inevitability, but a desirable outcome, and that it was through that violence that these strong nations and groups would be able to assert their dominance over others. There were key differences between Italian fascism and German Nazism, particularly the place of anti-Semitism in the early years of the movements, but at their core, they both sought to appeal to the same audience in both societies— those that were dissatisfied with the status quo and believed that they could make their nations and themselves more powerful through the proper application of violence. What transitioned both groups from small radical parties that had little influence to groups that were leading their respective nations was the support that they received from the wider political establishment. 
Both groups would be seen as perhaps a bit more passionate in their rhetoric and actions, but not outside the realm of reasonableness, and they were seen as a great counterweight to the rising influence of the communist parties in both Italy and Germany. Both the fascists and the Nazis were seen as a possible problem, but a problem with an upside, pushing back against the grassroots support for communist parties that were equally unafraid to use violence when they felt it was justified. In 1933, in Germany, this support from the political status quo was essential to allowing the Nazi party, after a string of electoral successes, to be brought into the government with Hitler in the position of chancellor. He was surrounded by an almost entire cabinet of what were seen as traditional and stable conservative political leaders, leaders that would prove to be completely unequipped to actually stop the sequence of events that would leave Hitler and the Nazi party in complete control of Germany. In the beginning, the Nazi government would look a lot like the German governments that had come before it, but changes would become more rapid as time went by. The key turning point would be the Enabling Act, put in place just weeks after the creation of the Nazi government, which used the pretext of a communist attack on the government to suspend most of the personal freedoms that German citizens enjoyed. This suspension would prove to be permanent. For both the communists on the left and the fascist and Nazis on the right, one of the key ingredients in their success was a general lack of ability of the governments in many nations to gain and retain the faith of large groups of their citizens. The First World War had put unbelievable stress on the societal fabric in many nations, and in its aftermath there were many problems that were not easy to solve. Borders had been changed, nations had been created, and the cost of the war had to be paid in more ways than just currency. There were millions of war veterans who would spend their first years as adults fighting a war that was now over. Millions spent the war years in war industries that no longer existed. There were families that had experienced loss, not just among those who had went to the front, but also those who had been left behind that had to live a life of privation due to the economic crisis in Central and Eastern Europe. There was real improvement for many people during the 1920s, which came to a crashing halt at the end of the decade with the Great Depression. Suddenly, those that had built a life after the war had lost their job, or had their ability to export their agricultural products removed, or simply suffered under rising costs. National governments all over the world tried to make changes, and tried to find ways to solve some of the problems, but there were limits on what they could do, and what they would do. Public works programs, increased public welfare, and other actions were taken, but for years, none of them seemed to be enough. All of these hardships gave space for more radical political ideologies to gain a larger foothold in many nations. In some, this would lead to the downfall of the democracies that had been set up after the war, with Poland being an example of a democratic government that failed in favor of a military dictatorship. In other nations, like in Germany, the democratic government was able to hang on just barely, as radical groups on both sides of the political spectrum gathered up greater and greater numbers of supporters, and the center was simply unable to hold. In Spain, this kind of radical political segmentation would lead to a civil war. It's a good vision of what might have happened in nations like Germany or Italy if events had gone slightly differently and, and fighting would have erupted during their governmental transitions. In Spain, the most popular political ideologies of the day would all come into the conflict with one another. Socialism, communism, anarchism, fascism, nationalism, authoritarianism, and many more were all represented. All of these changes, regardless of how violent they were, 
all point back to one feeling among millions of people. The established governments of the day were simply incapable of meeting their needs. From democratic socialist governments on the left to conservative governments on the right, many came to believe that there could not be the changes they believed necessary within the confines and restrictions of the existing political, economic, and societal structures. This pushed them to find groups that were not just saying that changes were needed, but also groups that were pushing for radical change, revolutionary change, and seemed completely unafraid of making those changes to their society. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. One of the similarities between all of these radical groups was their willingness to use force, which began as a willingness to meet street violence with street violence, and then when they came to power, the constant push for greater military strength in preparation for what they saw as the impending conflict which they were willing to instigate. The Soviets felt they had to rebuild their military strength in the 1920s out of concern that the capitalist West was going to try and overthrow their communist government. In Japan, a larger military was needed to push Japanese control onto the Asian continent and to protect from possible retaliation. Mussolini and the Italian fascists expanded Italian military spending due to their dreams of expansion in Africa and the Balkans. And in Germany after 1933, Hitler and the Nazis pushed the German economy almost to the breaking point, preparing for a war of conquest in Eastern Europe. Around these nations, other nations had to then pour their own money into rearmament efforts out of fear that they would not be able to protect themselves. None of these nations were spending the money on military hardware because they liked shiny things that go boom. All of them had a purpose, either defensive or offensive, or in many cases both. Britain and France were two major nations in Europe that were generally quite late to the rearmament game, not beginning serious efforts until the last years of the 1930s, leaving them playing catch-up even after the start of the war. 
many words have been written about this delay, particularly the British efforts at appeasement during the 1930s, and I think it's a pretty well-trod ground even on this very podcast. But what I will say is that what is evident is how each nation treated rearmament, and in particular, when the real commitment of national resources to those rearmament efforts was made, and that was dictated by how willing they were to use their military forces that they were creating. Some nations, like Germany, Italy, and Japan, believed that to achieve their national goals, they had to have a strong military, and that military would be used. When Germany started building Panzer III's, they were not doing so to look good on the parade ground or as a deterrent. They were doing so because they believed that they were going to be used to invade another nation, probably more than one. This different outlook between nations, between those who were building a military to defend national interests and those that were building a military as a weapon to wield against others, shifted how rearmament was viewed and how rearmament could be justified. These viewpoints were not just in the heads of political leaders, but also were borne out by public sentiment, with groups in nations like Britain pushing their government to support peace initiatives at every opportunity. These differences in how nations viewed rearmament and how they viewed the weapons that they were creating would not end with the start of the war. It would also impact the strategies of nations during the early months and years of the conflict. There was, after all, a reason that while German bombers were dropping bombs on Warsaw, the British and French bombers in the early weeks of the war were loading up on leaflets to drop on German cities. By the end of the 1930s, all of these rearmament efforts all over the world were creating militaries that were being used in ever-escalating ways. Japan would push into Manchuria and then into northern China, and then they would capture Shanghai and begin to push deeper and deeper into central China to try and destroy the nationalist and communist forces that were opposing them. In Africa, the Italian military would invade Ethiopia, then after a somewhat tumultuous campaign, would turn it into an Italian colony. In Spain, Germany, Italy, and the Soviet Union would all send military equipment and manpower to help the groups that they supported in the Civil War. Even where fighting did not happen, just the fact that there were so many nations putting so much money into rearmament shifted and changed events. During the remilitarization of the Rhineland in 1935, one of the key points of conversation in the French government was the strength of the German military even at that early date. Similar conversations would then occur in London and Paris before and during the Munich crisis, as the German military had grown even greater during the intervening years. The size of the German military and the belief that Hitler might just use it unless his demands were met was an important ingredient to the absorption of Austria and then the Sudetenland and then the rest of Czechoslovakia. One way to look at the events of the 1930s is a period of escalating war. It began far away from what were considered the great powers in Europe because it would begin in Eastern Asia with Japanese expansion. Then in the mid-1930s, it grew closer with the Italian actions in Africa. Then it transitioned to Spain in the form of a civil war that would have been markedly different without the military hardware that poured into the conflict by other nations who were, you know, already building it for their own usage. As Spain began to wind down, things shifted into Eastern Europe with the German occupation of Austria. Now, of course, that was there was no fighting in Austria. There was no fighting in, in the Rhineland before it or in Czechoslovakia after. But they were still military occupations. They just happened to be unopposed. German military divisions would move on Vienna and then into the Sudetenland and then into Prague. Is it a military campaign if nobody is there to fight? Well, I guess I would say yes. 
Maybe the best argument for an earlier start date of the Second World War is not about how you view the relationship between the Sino-Japanese War and Europe and, and the traditional Second World War that would start in Europe, but instead how you view the German Eighth Army crossing the border with Austria in March 1938. So those are some of the themes of the events of the interwar period that I feel left Europe on the brink of a world war in August 1939. I wanted to close with some of my personal thoughts and observations from the last 107 episodes. I think I've mentioned a few times over the years, but just to reiterate, many times when I am researching for the podcast, I'm not an expert on a topic when research on that topic begins. After I started History of the Great War in 2014, essentially all of my reading time that had been focused on, on other things in history pretty much were just focused on podcast-related topics, which means that there's been a pretty good gap where I read very little about the Second World War. Even before 2014, most of my reading had been on topics outside of the interwar years, with a focus being primarily on the Pacific War. I knew the basic outline of the events leading up to the war, as I'm guessing pretty much everybody listening to episode 108 of a podcast called History of the Second World War also already knew. Mussolini comes to power, Hitler comes to power, appeasement, rearmament, war. That's the basic outline. I have certainly learned a lot over the course of the last 107 episodes, but I just wanted to pull out three things to discuss the scale of the fighting during the 1930s, the political dimensions of appeasement, and the general mechanics of how the Italian fascists and the German Nazis came to power. Now, I knew about the Second Sino-Japanese War, but it's one of those conflicts that is easy to miss if you're not actively trying to find more information about it. The events in Nanking and the brutality of the Japanese conquest of the city is unfortunately an event that gets mentioned in many sources, but the lengthy fighting in and around Shanghai, which lasted from August until November 1937 and involved hundreds of thousands of troops on both sides, was an event I'd read almost nothing about. That's probably why we spent several episodes talking about it earlier in the podcast. I was just amazed that all of this was happening, and I'd maybe read a sentence or a paragraph about it before in a couple of books. The fighting in China during the 1930s, first between the nationalists and the communists, and then with the Japanese, is probably one of the areas I would love to see some more readily accessible histories written that focus on the confusing mix of events during that time. The second item on my list was the public politics of appeasement. The story of appeasement is again something that, that you cannot miss if you read anything about the start of the war. Chamberlain, Munich, cowardice are words that all seem to go together. What I did not understand was the massive support for the peace movement that was present in British politics in the mid-1930s. It would later erode due to the actions of Hitler and others, but the desire for peace and the belief in collective security was very much alive and well when Chamberlain flew to meet with Hitler. The final item that really stuck out at me is how, in many ways, unexceptional the Nazi rise to power was when looked at from both the perspective of German politics and then from an international angle. From within Germany, the creation of the Nazi government was after two short-lived governments under von Papen and Schleicher, which both had ruled by presidential decree with only minority support in the Reichstag since May 1932. When a deal was made with Hitler and the National Socialist Party, the new government was closer to being a majority government than had existed in Germany for almost a year. 
It was also a, a government supported by traditionally conservative leaders like Papen and Hugenberg. The feeling was that with the Nazi party tied to the government, something they had resisted up to that point, their policies would be moderated and the violence that they had used to garner support over the previous years would end. All of this meant that when the Nazi party came to power in January 1933, it was not through some final act of violence or through a revolution. It was through a boring political alliance with other political leaders. Similar events had occurred in Italy when Mussolini and his fascists came to power. The threat of violence with the March on Rome, which did not actually involve any kind of attack on Rome, which would have almost certainly failed if it would have actually involved an actual clash, was enough to allow the fascists to intimidate their way into power. But then, when they came to power, it took the form of a national, normal Italian government, and would not really shift and make meaningful changes for years. During those early years of fascist government in Italy, and in the early months of the Nazi government in Germany, they were able to unify many political factions under the idea that all they really hated were the communists. <laughs> And they also refused to work with the moderate socialists. This was something that, that many conservative politicians and many, you know, conservative members within society strongly supported. In Germany, this period where the support from the other right-wing groups was required for the government would be relatively short, with the passage of the Enabling Act in March 1933, which was still based on the perceived and amplified threat of a communist revolution, solidifying the Nazi position of power. What I found interesting about all of this is that while the fascists and Nazis used violence as a political tactic to grow and shape their support within society, they came to power and then initially formed governments that looked very normal. They were not revolutionary. They did not exist to tear down existing power structures and change society, but instead to use the existing power structures to their own advantage. Mussolini was appointed Prime Minister of Italy just as previous Prime Ministers had been. The Nazi Party gained the most votes in multiple consecutive German elections, and even relatively fair ones, before they came to power, and then Hitler was named Chancellor in the same way that had been done since the creation of the Weimar Republic. They did not come to power through revolution, but through politics. The closest you can come to an answer for a singular cause of the Second World War and a singular entity that caused that war was the German government and its actions after 1933. And that government, which would lead to the war, millions of deaths, an unfathomable amount of human suffering, was formed completely legally. And with the support of over a third of German voters, German industrial leaders, influential German political leaders, and the vestigial remains of what had once been Germany's largest conservative party. It's a rather boring coalition, and a rather boring beginning for a government that would cause so much suffering and destruction. Now, I started this podcast way back in episode one with the question of whether or not the Second World War was inevitable. I stand by my initial statement that the war was not inevitable after the First World War, but I do think if you look at a short enough time span, then it can appear to be totally inevitable. The challenge is that after Hitler and his government had firmly ensconced themselves in power by, the, say, the end of 1933, there are very few courses of action by other nations that do not result in war. Now, the war could have happened earlier, and maybe its opening stages would have went very differently if the French assert the Rhineland demilitarized zone, or if the German rejection of the Versailles Treaty limits of rearmament are responded to with force, but that still probably results in war. 
Any true off-ramp from a military conflict in Europe can probably only exist before 1933 and would require a whole list of different decisions to be made. Changes to the Versailles Treaty might have helped, although the most problematic pieces around reparations were largely reformed through the Dawes and Young's plans of the 1920s. Changes to how the German communists interacted with other left-wing political groups might have made a, a difference and just given a stronger united front to counteract the unifying nature of the Nazi party on the German right. Changes to the international reaction to the Great Depression, which may have reduced the economic effects in Germany and other nations, might have reduced the, the rise of extremists or, or radical political groups. There's probably an endless list of different decisions the German leaders, politicians, and citizens could have made over the course of the 1920s and over the first years of the 1930s. But unfortunately for many people over the next, you know, 20 years after 1930, it was impossible to know that any of those decisions would lead to a future war, and one that would be larger and more destructive than anything that had been seen before, even between 1914 and 1918. Overall, I hope you've found these interwar episodes of the podcast enlightening and interesting. And I know that for some of you, you know, we're, we're taking a little while longer, perhaps, than, than you would like. But I found everything to be very interesting. And I feel like I have a much better understanding now than, say, three years ago for why Europe in August 1939, less than 25 years after the end of the First World War, the, the continent was about to go to war again. And so that's where we're at now. Next episode will be the start of our series on the September campaign, the German invasion of Poland. We'll start with a little background information because we really have to set up the plans and the equipment and, and the capabilities of the two militaries that are going to meet in Poland in 1939. But we are, we are just a few episodes away from the panzers rolling into Poland. Some of you might say, finally. <laughs>